With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the story of 38-year-old Glenda Pulley, who was found shot to death in her home on April 16, 2005, in Warren County, North Carolina. After family members had not heard from Glenda or her 10-year-old son, Tyler, they went over to Glenda's home to check on them. But when they entered the home, they found Glenda and Tyler shot to death. Police quickly ruled the deaths a murder-suicide, and they believed that 10-year-old Tyler was the perpetrator. But Glenda and Tyler's family did not believe Tyler was capable of murder. So when $750,000 worth of life insurance policies were found, a different story began to emerge about what could have possibly happened to Glenda and Tyler. Did Tyler really murder his mother and then himself? Or was this actually a double homicide? This is Glenda's story. So I'm sure that you can imagine that I watch a lot of true crime. Now, of course, when I watch it, I'm also looking for stories I can cover for the podcast. Recently, I've been watching Still a Mystery, which is an ID channel show, and that's where I found the story about Glenda Pulley. The story immediately struck me because it's not often where you hear stories where a son is accused of killing his own mother, but a 10-year-old is almost unheard of. I had never heard of Glenda's story on any other true crime show before, but I knew that I wanted to cover this case because despite the initial ruling that this was a murder-suicide, this case is considered cold. In 2005, Glenda Pulley was living in Warren County, North Carolina. She was living there with her two sons, Danny, who was 20 at the time, and Tyler, who was 10. Glenda had been married to Danny and Tyler's father, Daniel Sr., but the couple had gotten divorced when Tyler was about two years old. Glenda and Daniel Sr. had met when Glenda was a teenager, and she was only about 18 years old when she had given birth to Danny Jr. According to Glenda's cousin in the episode of Still a Mystery, she wasn't really surprised when the couple divorced. They had been together for a long time, and she said they had really just grown apart. But like a lot of divorced people, Glenda and Daniel had trouble seeing eye to eye and they weren't really getting along. However, Daniel continued to be a part of his son's life and the two did the best that they could to co-parent their sons. Glenda's cousin said that Glenda adored her son. Despite the divorce, she worked really hard to create a stable, happy home for the boys. Glenda worked hard to make sure that her boys wanted for nothing. Everyone who knew Glenda said that she was a really nice person and a really good mother. Although Glenda was a dedicated mother, she was also single now after divorcing Daniel Sr. And not long after her divorce, Glenda met a man named Dennis Carter. 
According to Glenda's cousin, Dennis seemed like a really nice guy. He was quiet and polite. And most importantly, Glenda seemed to be really happy that she had met someone new. He also was a business owner and he seemed to be well-established. For the next several years, Glenda and Dennis dated. Dennis ran a tax business and also built houses. Glenda had purchased some land and her and Dennis had built a home on the property. The land was pretty large and so Glenda had plans to build additional homes on the land and then sell them. Glenda was really excited about the opportunity. I mean, a lot of people dream of being their own boss and owning their own business. And for the past 12 years, Glenda had worked for the Warren County Health Department. But with her new business venture on the horizon, Glenda was planning to resign from her job and focus 100% on her and Dennis's new business. Business, however, wasn't the only thing going well at the time for Glenda. After years of dating, Dennis and Glenda were finally preparing to get married. Their plan was to wed in August of 2005. Now, Glenda, of course, was excited about getting married again. Her and Dennis had been together for years, and they were starting a business together. I mean, all things considered, it would seem like a perfect time for the couple to get married. Except there was one little problem. Well, actually, it was a big problem. Dennis was married. According to Glenda's cousin, Dennis was still with his wife. Therefore, he couldn't marry Glenda. At least not yet. Now, Dennis had apparently been with his wife the entire 10 years that he had dated Glenda. But Dennis told Glenda that he was getting a divorce. And Glenda's cousin said that Glenda believed him and she believed that everything was going to work out and that they were going to be together. Now, it's not hard to imagine that Glenda's family's opinion of Dennis changed after learning he was married. But Glenda still loved Dennis and wanted to get married. He told her that the divorce would be final by the time that they were supposed to get married. And her cousin said that she believed that she was going to get her happily ever after with Dennis. In April 2005, the business that Glenda was planning to start with Dennis was really coming into fruition. And Glenda was planning to give her two weeks notice to her job on Monday, April 18th. Now, leading up to the weekend before, things appeared to be really normal for Glenda and Tyler. Like I said in the beginning of the story, Tyler was 10 years old at the time. And according to everyone who knew Tyler, including his father, Daniel, Tyler was a very normal, very happy kid. When Glenda met Dennis, Tyler was really young. And so Dennis had been in Tyler's life for most of his young life. On April 14, 2005, Tyler went to his Uncle Michael's house. Now, Uncle Michael lived within walking distance from where Glenda and Tyler lived. And that day, Tyler went to his uncle's house to ask for bullets for his shotgun. Now, the description of the shotgun belonging to Tyler comes from a letter by Daniel Sr. a year after the murder of his ex-wife and his son. But it actually seems like the gun was probably just a gun that was kept in the home. Now, we know that it's not uncommon for families to have guns in their homes. And in rural counties like Warren, there are probably many homes with guns. Now, people like me who grew up in this city for most of our lives aren't always aware of how, you know, relaxed people are in the country or rural areas about owning guns. And people who come from a tradition of hunting, you know, guns are really just a part of their lives. Now, Tyler was asking his uncle for the bullets because he said that Dennis was going to take him out to the woods behind where they lived to shoot squirrels. 
And according to Daniel, that day, Dennis and Tyler did go out to the woods to shoot squirrels, but only one shot was fired. Now, the next day, Friday, April 15th, according to Daniel, Tyler was really excited because Dennis had given him $20 so that he could buy the new 50 cent CD. Now, it's not clear who picked Tyler up that day after school, but whoever it was had been told by Tyler about the $20 for the CD. Now, during that week, Dennis had spent the night at Glenda's home every night, but according to Dennis, he didn't stay that night. Now, that evening, Tyler spoke to his uncle, Michael, and Tyler had made plans to come over that m- the next morning, you know, to help him with his dogs. Tyler also spoke to a friend that night. The two made plans to get together to play on Saturday afternoon. Now, Tyler and his friend were on the phone until about 1030 that night. And Glenda also spoke to Dennis that night on the phone. Now, for some reason, Dennis had actually recorded the conversation. And in the background, you can hear Tyler telling his mother goodnight. Nothing appeared to be out of the ordinary that night, and everything in Glenda's home seemed to be normal. Danny, Glenda's oldest son, also lived at the home during this time, but he wasn't home that night. Danny, who was 20 at the time, had a girlfriend, and so he had spent the night with her. Now, the next morning, Saturday, April 16th, Danny, Glenda's oldest son, came home around 10 a.m. And when he arrived at home, he found Dennis outside. Now, there's nothing immediately suspicious about Dennis being outside. I mean, he is Glenda's boyfriend. But Dennis asked Danny if he has seen his mother, to which Danny tells him that he had not because he had spent the night out. Dennis told Danny that he had knocked and rang the bell, but no one had answered the door. Dennis then asked Danny to open the door because he didn't have his key and he had locked it in Glenda's car. So Danny unlocked the door and took the alarm off and Danny and Dennis then went inside the home together. But it didn't appear like Tyler or Glenda were home. Now Dennis went upstairs to where Glenda's bedroom was. Glenda apparently kept her bedroom door locked. Dennis said that he knocked on the door to see if Glenda was there, but he got no answer. Glenda had kept a key outside of her room, but Dennis told Danny that he couldn't find the key. Then Dennis places calls to both Glenda and Tyler's phone, but neither of them answered. Dennis tells Danny that Glenda may have gone with her aunt to go get her nails done. It wasn't unusual for Tyler to not be home early Saturday morning, Tyler had plans to go to his grandmother's house for pancakes, which is something that Tyler did every Saturday morning. Now, Dennis and Danny left the home, and Danny reset the alarm. Dennis then called Glenda's mother, Louise, to see if she had spoken to Glenda or Tyler, but she had not spoken to them either. Dennis then goes over to Louise's home, and by this point, Louise is really worried about Glenda and Tyler, and so Louise and Dennis go back to Glenda's home. When they arrived again, you know, the door was locked and Michael, Glenda's brother, who lived close to Glenda, was in his yard and Louise and Dennis called him over to the home. Worried and with no key, Louise told Michael to kick down the front door. After entering the home, everything was the same as before when Dennis was there. Glenda's bedroom door was still locked and Tyler was still nowhere to be found. Dennis told Michael that the key Glenda's kept for her bedroom was missing. 
And so they used a knife and a fork to pick open the door lock. Michael was able eventually to get the door lock open and open the door to Glenda's room. And when he opened the bedroom door, he found the unimaginable. Lying on the bed in a pool of blood was Glenda. She had been shot in the back of the head. And when Michael went further into the bedroom, he found 10-year-old Tyler was laying on the floor at the foot of the bed. He had been shot in the chin. Glenda and Tyler were both dead. According to Michael, Dennis never entered the room where Glenda and Tyler were found. But Michael and Louise immediately called 911. After finding the bodies of Glenda and Tyler, at some point before police arrived, Danny Jr. and his girlfriend arrived back at his home. According to Daniel Sr., around 11 a.m., he got a call from Danny telling him that his mother and brother were dead. The deaths of Glenda and Tyler sent shockwaves throughout the small community where they lived. I mean, whether you're from a big city or a small town, news that a mother and her 10-year-old had been murdered in their own home would shock even the most hardened communities. So when investigators arrived at the home, they began to process the crime scene. When they entered Glenda's room, they found Glenda on the bed first, and at the foot of the bed, they found Tyler. During a search of the room, police were able to find two shotgun shells from the bullets. But almost immediately, police began to believe that they knew exactly what happened to Glenda and Tyler. According to investigators, when Tyler was found, he had a shotgun in his hand. The gun was laying across his chest, and his thumb was still on the trigger. Within hours of arriving at the home, investigators believed that they were not looking for a killer. They believed that Glenda and Tyler's deaths were the result of a murder-suicide caused by Tyler. Now, by this time, Daniel Sr., who was living in Georgia, had come to North Carolina. And when investigators told him that they believed Tyler had killed Glenda and then himself, Daniel said there was absolutely no way. Tyler adored his mother. There was no way that he would have killed her and then killed himself. But for investigators in this small town, this looked like it was going to be an open and shut case. I mean, they had the murder weapon in the hands of one of the victims. But children don't just kill their parents and murder suicides for no reason. What motive would Tyler have had to want to kill his mother and then himself? And what evidence did police have to support that theory? Despite everyone who was close to Tyler saying that he was a good kid who loved his mother, Dennis had a different story, and he painted a very different picture of Tyler for investigators. Let's be real. I think we can all probably up our fruit and veggie game. With a busy schedule like mine, it's hard to prioritize eating right. This year, I want to change that. That's why I'm keeping my freezer stocked with Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest is the easiest way to get more fruits and veggies into my day every day. They have my back with delicious foods that's good for me and good for the planet. Daily Harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls, flatbreads, smoothies, and more, all built on organic fruits and veggies, right to your door, and conveniently stays fresh in your freezer. I really enjoyed the broccoli and cheese harvest bowl and the sage and kombucha flatbread. They were both so delicious and really filling. 
Daily Harvest takes literally minutes to prepare and never uses preservatives, added sugar, or artificial anything. And that goes for everything. They have so many delicious options for every time of the day. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert, or a snack. Daily Harvest has you covered. Daily Harvest is all about preserving and protecting the earth for current and future generations to come. From their recyclable and compostable packaging to investing in organic farming practices and reducing food waste, you can feel good about the choices you are making physically and for the environment. Daily Harvest makes it easy to feel good about what I'm doing for myself and the planet. Go to dailyharvest.com slash girlgone to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash girlgone for up to $40 off your first box. Dailyharvest.com slash girlgone. It's the new year and I want to reinvent my style. That's why I went to Ana Luisa Jewelry. Ana Luisa Jewelry is made for you and the planet in mind. They are 100% carbon and water neutral, but also really pretty if you ask me. Their versatile designs are perfect to mix and match and wear every day. I even layer my necklaces together now. I have such a hard time choosing just one to wear, so why not two or three? Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, has timeless jewelry for any occasion. A cute ring to show off at the grocery store when you pay for your groceries, a dainty bracelet for when you pick up an iced coffee, and a luxurious necklace that makes your friends think, wow, she must be making a lot of money with a necklace like that. But the best part is Ana Luisa jewelry starts at just $39. The prices are incredible. And with the code GIRLGONE, you can get up to 40% off your order at shop.analuisa.com. At Ana Luisa, that's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A, their prices are the perfect gift for anybody on your list. A friend, a partner, a sister-in-law, a daughter to spoil. Plus, the gift guide on their website, along with their bestsellers page, are great destinations to browse for most gifted options. So while you're getting yourself a new necklace, throw one in for your sister. I mean, why not? You're getting 40% off anyways. How could I forget? New jewelry collections are released every Friday. Get yourself and your loved ones the perfect gift with up to 40% off. Check out Anna Luisa at shop.analuisa.com slash girlgone. I know that you guys are going to love them. When it comes to podcasts covering mystery and murder, Generation Y is a true original. If you're obsessed with crime and unsolved murder cases, this show has it all. Host Aaron and Justin cover cases from all angles. They break down theories, deep dive into forensic evidence, and discuss their opinions on the most perplexing cases. In a recent episode, Aaron and Justin look into the case of Lori DuPont. Lori was a well-respected 37-year-old nurse and single mother. She had met a physician named Mark Daniel at work, and the two had hit it off and began a secret relationship. But after a while, the romance cooled, and Mark began harassing Lori at work. Turned out, Mark had a history of dating and being abusive towards nurses. Lori filed a restraining order, but before a judge could issue it, Mark entered the hospital with a military sword and committed an unthinkable crime. Listen to the Generation Y podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On April 16, 2005, the bodies of 38-year-old Glenda Pulley and her 10-year-old son, Tyler Jones, were found inside their Warren County, North Carolina home. They had both been shot to death. Investigators believed that they knew what had happened to Glenda and Tyler. And within days, they were declaring their deaths the result of a murder-suicide orchestrated by 10-year-old Tyler. No one in Tyler and Glenda's family, including his father, Daniel, believed that Tyler could ever be capable of doing something like this. Like I said, by all accounts, Tyler was a normal kid, very active, full of energy. And if you're raising boys, you know exactly what kind of energy they can possess. He'd like to ride four-wheelers and play outside with his friends and cousins. And there was no history of him being a troubled child or having behavior issues. But When investigators spoke to Dennis at the home after the murders, Dennis sang a different tune about Tyler. Dennis told investigators that Tyler had anger issues. Now, Glenda's family said that police didn't ask anyone close to Tyler if he had anger issues. According to them, they did not try to confirm what Dennis said with anyone else in Glenda and Tyler's family or circle. And instead, they took what Dennis said as proof that Tyler had committed this crime. Investigators used Dennis's words in the official report, and it was noted on the medical examiner's report. By 6 p.m. that evening on the 16th, investigators had finished processing the scene. And according to Daniel, the home was opened back up and people were allowed to come and go. Now, that would give you the impression that police had collected all the evidence that they needed in seven hours and were not going to need to go back in the home because... Why else would they allow people to go back inside the house? But the reason why is because they had decided at that point that the case was essentially closed. And when a suicide note was found, all of the investigators' beliefs about Tyler being the perpetrator were confirmed. But how and when the suicide note was found is not clear and is actually kind of confusing. Now, according to an article two days after the murder, the investigator on the case said that a suicide note was found under a pillow in the home, but he does not say who found the note. But on the episode of Still a Mystery, Daniel says that police did not find the note and that the funeral director found the note, which is interesting because the funeral director would not have had access to the bodies until after the medical examiner had completed the autopsies. And so that kind of makes it seem like the note was in Tyler's pocket. And if it was in Tyler's pocket, then that would raise the question about why police would not have found it immediately. I mean, even if it was under the pillow, if police were not the ones who found it, then how thoroughly did they actually process the scene? Now, this is no shade, but smaller police departments don't have the resources to deal with crimes of this magnitude. And these kind of crimes don't often happen in their communities. So their experience with this sort of thing is limited. But in this case, state investigators had also been on the case the day of the murder. 
although they later claimed that they had a very limited role in the investigation. The suicide note for investigators, however, was the final piece that they would need to officially rule this case a murder-suicide and close the investigation. In the note, 10-year-old Tyler allegedly writes, quote, Sorry, everybody. I'm sorry for killing my best mom. So I'm going to write a little song and then kill myself. My dad don't even care for me. He doesn't even call me. And if you want to understand me more, listen to 50 Cent, The Massacre. He then writes the words, my life, in really large letters. And then the letter is signed, from Tyler. The police photo of this letter shows that the letter was creased multiple times like it had been folded up. Now, when Daniel is shown the note, he tells investigators that his son did not write that letter. And he's not the only one who didn't believe that Tyler had not written that letter. Glenda's cousins also did not believe that Tyler was capable of writing a letter like that. I mean, even the fact that a suicide note was left at all was suspicious. I mean, a 10-year-old had the wherewithal to compose a suicide note after he had shot and killed his mother with a shotgun. Glenda and Tyler's family didn't believe that Tyler would be able to formulate those kind of thoughts. But police, however, did not agree with them. They believed that Tyler was a troubled child and that he murdered his mother and then himself. Case closed. For Glenda's family, however, it was far from close case. They knew that Tyler was not capable of killing his mother and then himself. But it wasn't just what they knew about Tyler that made them believe he wasn't the person who did this. It was what they knew and then soon found out about Dennis that solidified their suspicion that this was not a murder-suicide. It was a double murder. According to Glenda's family, Dennis's behavior in the days after her and Tyler's murder was odd. Glenda's family said that despite having been in a relationship with her for 10 years, Dennis showed very little emotion about the deaths. He seemed to be far more focused on the investigation itself. He wanted to know about what the investigators were doing, and he was asking people about whether or not they were speaking to the sheriff. On April 22nd, 2005, Glenda and Tyler's family held a wake for them, but Dennis did not attend. Nor did he attend their funerals that were held the following day. Dennis not showing up at the funerals made Glenda's family very suspicious. It's one thing to not show a lot of emotion, but to not show up at her wake or funeral? That spoke loudly and clearly to Glenda's family, and they started to take a closer look at who Dennis really was. After Glenda's murder, her family learned about several life insurance policies that had been taken out by Glenda. The policies were worth a total of $750,000, and all of the policies listed Dennis's mother as the beneficiary. Now, why would Glenda's boyfriend's mother be the beneficiary of her life insurance policies when Glenda had two children? Now, Glenda's family learned that by the Monday following the murders, Dennis was already on the phone inquiring about Glenda's life insurance policy. The policy was eventually paid out to Dennis's mother. And after that, Glenda's family stopped hearing from Dennis. They later found out that the week following Glenda's murder, that Dennis had also called Glenda's job at the health department and asked if he could see her computer. He told them that he had been dating her for about 10 years and that they were supposed to be getting married that summer. 
like Glenda's family was at a complete loss. First, the deaths of Glenda and Tyler. Then the ruling that Tyler had been the perpetrator, which, of course, they never believed. But now they're finding out that Glenda had taken out multiple life insurance policies, making Dennis's mother the beneficiary. Now, of course, they never believed that Tyler was capable of murder, and they believed that this new information created a clear motive for Dennis to have actually been the one who killed Glenda and Tyler. Despite having ruled this a murder-suicide, when investigators learn about the insurance policies, they also began to become a little bit more suspicious of Dennis. Not only had Glenda taken out life insurance policies and made his mother the beneficiary, Dennis also controlled all of his mother's finances, despite the fact that she was of sound mind and body. Now, the more investigators looked into not only Dennis's finances, but Glenda's finances, they started to become more and more suspicious of Dennis. In May 2005, Warren County detectives executed a search warrant on Dennis Carter, and the warrant was for financial records that he was in possession of. Investigators had learned that Glenda had been living really outside of her means, and it appeared like Dennis had really been taking advantage of her. At Glenda's job for the county health department, she made about $422 every two weeks. The home she owned had a mortgage of about $693 a month. But in December 2004, Glenda purchased a brand new Cadillac Escalade that had a monthly payment of $1,100 a month. Now, that would put Glenda in the hole every month since she only brought home $850 a month. But Dennis had claimed that he had been making the payments on the SUV. Now, it seems like the Escalade was purchased in Glenda's name, but the car was really supposed to be for Dennis. And after her death, Dennis asked Glenda's father for the truck, but her father refused to give it to him. In January 2005, Glenda took out a $200,000 life insurance policy on herself that carried a monthly payment of $422, which is equal to an entire paycheck for Glenda. Three days later, Glenda took out another insurance policy, this time for $250,000. That policy carried a $330 monthly payment. Within three days, Glenda had taken out two separate life insurance policies, totaling $450,000 that had a monthly payment of $760, almost Glenda's entire monthly salary. Now, why would Glenda be paying that amount of money for life insurance? I mean, do not get me wrong. Life insurance is very important, but you still got to live while you're alive. You can't be broke paying for a life insurance policy worth $450,000. So none of that made any sense. But what made even less sense is that Dennis's mother would be named the beneficiary. A mother of two took out $450,000 in life insurance and then named her boyfriend's mother the beneficiary. Not her own mother, not her oldest son, not her brother, but her boyfriend's mom. But it gets weirder. On March 11th, 2005, a little over a month before Glenda and Tyler were murdered, the two insurance companies where the life insurance policies had come from received handwritten letters from Glenda stating that no one was to know about these insurance policies, not even the beneficiary. 
Now, why in the world would you not want the beneficiary of a life insurance policy to know that they were the beneficiary? Then, 11 days later, on March 22nd, a woman claiming to be Linda called Nationwide to have the address on her policy changed to Dennis's address. A month later, and two days before Glenda and Tyler were murdered, again, Glenda contacted Nationwide and added accidental life to her policy. Now, Glenda insisted on paying right away so that there wouldn't be any delay and the policy change would go into effect on April 15th. On April 16th, Glenda was dead. Now, when police interviewed Dennis, he claimed to have no knowledge of these insurance policies, despite his mother being the beneficiary. And after Glenda's death, Dennis tried to obtain a copy of Glenda's death certificate so the policies would pay out. He went from not knowing the policies existed to requesting a death certificate without her family's knowledge. Investigators had also learned that not only was Dennis still married, but he was very much still with his wife and they were living together in Whitaker, North Carolina. When Glenda died, she had a mountain of debt. Meanwhile, Dennis had come into a $750,000 windfall from Glenda's death. In the months following the murder, suspicion had started to shift from Tyler as the killer to Dennis. Unlike Dennis, Tyler had no reason to want to kill his mother. But aside from the belief that Tyler didn't kill his mom, the evidence at the crime scene also raised a lot of questions. According to the police, when Tyler was found, he was still holding the shotgun. And according to the report, Tyler was laying at the foot of the bed with the gun, gun across his chest. However, Daniel Sr. disputed that, and he said that when Michael, Glenda's brother, found Tyler, he was sitting up against the bed with his body slumped over the gun, with the gun at his chin and his finger on the trigger. Daniel made the point that no one, adult or child, would still be holding a shotgun in place after shooting themselves with it. The power of the kickback from the gun would have likely knocked it out of Tyler's hand after he shot himself. There were also no fingerprints found on the gun, and Tyler's hands were never tested for gunshot residue. There also appeared to be some sort of struggle in the bedroom, and it seemed unlikely that Tyler, a 10-year-old, would have been able to overpower his mother. Eventually, a private investigator began working on the case, and he discovered even more evidence that police seemingly ignored. First, there was the 50-cent CD. Now, two days before his death, Tyler had purchased a CD with money that Dennis had given him. Yet, the day of the murders, before the suicide note was found, Dennis had allegedly said to Michael that he had told Glenda not to buy the 50-cent CD for Tyler, almost as if he knew that the CD would be referenced in the letter. It was also weird because Dennis had been the one who gave Tyler the money for the CD. But the planning also would have been really intricate, and there would have been a lot to go into the planning for a 10-year-old. I mean, according to police, Tyler took a long-barreled shotgun, shot his mother in the back of the head, then he got a piece of paper and a pencil, composed a suicide note that he then folded up and tucked away, and then he sat at the foot of his mother's bed, put the shotgun to his chin, and pulled the trigger. 
And he also, at some point, would have had to have locked the bedroom door, right? Because the bedroom door was locked. And it didn't seem like Glenda would have locked herself in the room with her 10-year-old if he was trying to kill her. Now, with everything that police learned about Dennis, they still had not changed the cause of death for Glenda and Tyler. They claimed that the investigation was still ongoing, but they had not cleared Tyler's name. But Glenda and Tyler's family believed that this murder was staged to look like a murder-suicide and that Dennis had actually killed Glenda and Tyler. A year after the murders, Daniel wrote a letter to the state attorney general. He wrote the letter in defense of his son and as a criticism of the investigation, which he did not believe was thorough in the beginning, and he believed that critical evidence had been missed. He stated in the letter that without a confession, Warren County sheriffs had told him that there was nothing that they could do. The State Bureau of Investigation said that they had only played a small role in the investigation and that Warren County was handling the case. In 2010, the SBI said that they had reached out to Warren County to see if any progress had been made on the case, but they were told that they had no new information. The case was still open, but cold, and officially, Tyler was still considered to be his mother's murderer. His name had not been cleared, despite the overwhelming evidence that something else actually may have happened that morning. Years had gone by, and investigators had made no movement in the case. It seemed like Dennis had just simply moved on with his life and all his new money. But seven years later, Dennis Carter would again be connected to a murdered woman. In June 2012, the body of 29-year-old Crystal Bell was found outside an abandoned home 30 miles away from Glenda's home. Crystal had been shot multiple times and her car had been set on fire. From the beginning, police seemed to have no idea what could have happened to Crystal. But not long after her murder, Crystal's family learned that Crystal had a will that they knew nothing about. And guess who was named as the sole beneficiary of her will? Dennis Carter. Crystal had met Dennis Carter a few years before when she began working for him as a personal assistant. Dennis was now working as a real estate developer, but not long after Crystal began working for him, they began a romantic relationship. They spoke on the phone every day, and they had even traveled together. Crystal's family had met Dennis, and like Glenda's family in the beginning, they said that he was a nice guy. But Crystal had a daughter, so why would she leave everything she owned to Dennis Carter, a person she described as a friend in the will? The will specifically excluded her mother and her daughter's father and made no mention of her child. Those close to Crystal say that Crystal had always wanted to be a mother and her daughter was the most important thing to her. So in the event of her death, instead of leaving her assets to her only child, she left them to her quote-unquote friend, Dennis. Now, prior to her death, Crystal's home had caught on fire at least two times, but Both fires happened within an 18-month period and were deemed suspicious. Crystal had also received two insurance payments for the fire, but her family did not know what happened to the money. There had been a series of fires connected to Dennis or people Dennis knew, and there was suspicion that Dennis was helping people commit insurance fraud by committing arson, and he might have tricked Crystal into participating in his schemes. 
No one in Crystal's life could understand why Crystal would name Dennis as the beneficiary of her will, but they knew that it was very suspicious. After her death, they hired a private investigator to take a deeper look into Crystal's murder. The PI learned about the murders of Glenda and Tyler and immediately saw similarities. Dennis, according to Crystal's daughter's father, had collected around $27,000 from Crystal's estate. Now, the only connection both Glenda and Crystal had to each other was Dennis Carter. He had known both women, he had had romantic relationships with both women, and then both women had made him the beneficiary and they both ended up dead. Now, that's one hell of a coincidence. And Dennis apparently has some very strange luck because the married man kept finding women who made him the beneficiary of their monies upon their death, and then they both met violent deaths, leaving him with hundreds of thousands of dollars and their children with nothing. Now, the private investigator working on Crystal's case believes that the lack of coordination between police departments is one of the reasons why they have not been able to narrow in on the perpetrator of these crimes. Dennis Carter, however, has maintained his innocence and has not been charged, nor is he suspected in any of the murders. Dennis Carter has never given an interview to anyone besides police, and so he has never publicly given his side of these stories. And therefore, we don't know what he has to say about these women or these situations. It has been 16 years since Glenda and Tyler were murdered. Their family has never suspended belief that Tyler did not commit this murder. And a lot of the evidence is on their side. As of now, the murders of Glenda and Tyler and the murder of Crystal Bell remain unsolved. Both cases are cold and there have been no recent developments in either cases. Glenda's family has had to not only deal with Glenda and Tyler's death, but they're also fighting to clear Tyler's name in death. They want him to be remembered as the kid they knew, not the one Dennis and police accused him of being. There are a mountain of suspicious things surrounding these deaths, and there were critical mistakes made by law enforcement in the immediate aftermath of Linda and Tyler's murder. And although justice has not come for these families yet, there's always hope, and sometimes even the smallest thing can reignite a case. I hope that both of these families are able to get justice. And for Glenda and Tyler's family, I hope that they can finally clear Tyler's name once and for all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We will be back next week with a brand new story. Join us on Patreon for exclusive mini-sodes and ad-free episodes. As always, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Black Girl Gone Podcast. Listening on Apple Podcasts? Show your support for the show by leaving a review and a five-star rating. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.